Hey guys, friend of the show, Shady Rays, has an exciting new offer for all you Passing Dimes fans. For the next 30 days, you can get 40% off when you buy two or more pairs of sunglasses. Just click the link in our show notes or on our Instagram bio to shop these awesome deals. Use discount code TEAM to get the offer. Shady Rays, live hard, we got you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest, one of the most entertaining players I ever got the chance to work with and see live. He grew up playing for Pac-Man. He played for Goonies, which I'm hoping for a couple stories from there. He's played in the One Volleyball League for the Magnus Spartans. He's been a part of FTC. He's played for Team Canada on our national B team, and he just finished his first year pro in Germany. Please welcome to the show, Joey Jarvis. Joey, thanks for doing this. No problem. No problem. Thank you for having me. So let, let's, you know, get your story out there, because I was amazed to learn this. You grew up north of Toronto, but you would mission out to Pac-Man to play clubs. So how did you fall in volleyball so much that you're like, I think your your commute to practice was probably as long as practice was. It was longer. I mean, I started off playing basketball and transitioned over to volleyball because my brother played. And then to see the technical aspect with like players are jumping I mean, at the time, it looked like for no reason. And I was like, hey, this makes no sense. And then people are getting faked out, and then the ball's hitting the floor. I was like, that's cool. I want to do that. And then it all sparked because when my brother played, they lost the first couple games of the season. And as they got better um, practices, players got stronger, they ended up winning the York Region Championship. So they went all the way, came first place. And I was like, that's pretty cool. I mean... Had I tried out, I could have had a medal too. But yeah, it was um, it was pretty nice to see that volleyball was more than just you know the sport you play before basketball season starts. And then you know actually seeing and understanding that there was volleyball outside of school and volleyball outside of post secondary, and you could actually make money playing volleyball. That's why I started to take it a little more serious and kind of look deeper into like the technical side and understanding the game more. Did it take a certain point for your skills to get up to par? Because I think, like you said, volleyball can be like the, the sport you play before basketball or people who played in gym class know it's not that fun, but where your skills get involved and you can start to play it at like a, a physical and a fast level. Is that what kind of pulled you away from the other sports you were playing? One thing I'll always say about volleyball, a lot of basketball players, the one thing you never forget is your first dunk. I remember it was grade nine, gym class. I was wearing, you know, my gym uniform. And some vans, everybody would make fun of me. Uh, I wore vans all the time. Played basketball in vans. I did my first dunk in my vans. Because I had big hands, I could palm the ball. Ran up to the net. Huge travel, you know. I didn't care about that, you know, there was no refs. And I did my first dunk. And I was like, that was a highlight. When it comes to volleyball, physicality comes in terms of your opponent. Or your teammates. So... I can have a 40-inch vertical, but that only puts par with somebody who's like 6'8 <laughs> and has a maybe a 20. So it's that level of fight to be better, to be stronger, and also finding different ways to outsmart your opponent. Like even on the beach, I remember in my 18th year, I believe, the kids who won nationals a year younger than me were two liberals, I'm pretty sure. It's like to see the sport is not just about how big you are or how strong you are. It's also about like the mental game. So it's a, it's a 
pretty great combination of both, which is a lot different than other sports. You can have one flaw, and if a team picks up on it, that could be like the make or break of a one point, a lost point, a one set, a lost set. So there's a constant chase to be a well-rounded athlete and player. I really liked about volleyball. That's what kind of drew me towards it. Nice, nice. And when you decided to play outside of school and go to a club team, why was Pac-Man worth the commute? Because uh, we talked about how long it was, but th- there was definitely clubs closer, right? So what made you pursue and want to play for that club? The biggest thing was I I really respected my 14 and 15-year coach. Like A lot of the stuff I know now and train with now are stuff that I learned from my head coach and assistant coach at the time. And I think the biggest thing that helped shape me at the time was the values they gave me. Like they said, hey, if you want to be a regular player, then play the regular hours. You know, we practice three times a week, two hours, so that's six hours of training. That's what everyone gets. If you want to be better than that, you're going to have to do more than those six hours. So doing little things at home, watching videos, trying to be better was that constant push. But the one thing I that drew me to Pac-Man was the level of training. Kelly really prides himself on giving all 14, 15 players on the roster the same level and quality of training, and he holds them to the same standard. So I'm like, ah, oh, he's a bench player, you know, he's expected to miss. Like, if there's someone who's constantly killing drills, either he'll help them out in a certain way, take them to the side with another coach, find ways to help them get on track with everyone else. So just to see that the higher level of training and stuff and understanding the game more. For example, I didn't really know rotations until I got to 16 year when I went to Pac-Man. And they're like, oh, you're supposed to stand here because of this and that. I was like, uh, I thought you just, you know, move back and pass because that's what I was taught. So just the level of training was different. And then you start to understand why people at a higher level are doing certain things when you start learning it. So the biggest thing that drew me there and my commute was just the level and atmosphere was different. It was like everybody competing against each other and then practice is done. It's like we're all friends. We're all teammates. So it was just a completely different environment. And this might speak to your character a little bit, but again, adding in how long the commute was and your dedication to the team, you weren't really a starter. And Kelly, I don't think playing time was ever a charity, right? Like he was going to play the guys who he thought had the best chance of winning. So how did you stay connected? Because if you're putting in all that time and doing that extra travel that we've already talked about and and not starting when you get to tournaments or not playing as much as maybe you wanted to, how did you stay connected and, and not... I don't know, put the pouty face on and quit or go to a different club and all that stuff that you might see some some lesser athletes do? Honestly, it's a pretty easy answer. Uh, at the time, it was... One thing Kelly really did was when he got to a point where, you know, he felt like he gave what he could to the team, there was different coaches he brought in to coach different aspects of the game. So one practice we had, Preston come in, from McMaster's and he taught us uh, block defense and then Dustin Reed came in a couple of times taught us um, uh, ball control stuff Wally Daiba came in taught us uh, he was actually in a lot during our 18U season with the various things so it was mentally 
the easiest thing for me was just seeing my overall improvement regardless of how much I got on the court. So whether it was my I was destined to play 17U, 18U after that, I knew the time I was putting in wasn't for nothing and I wasn't going to let it go to waste. So I just kept going at it. Like the commute was crazy. To get to an eight o'clock practice, I had to be on a bus by five o'clock and then commuting all the way to uh, Mississauga secondary for practice, two hour practice, and then commuting all the way back home, getting home by like 11, 30, 12, doing that twice a week. And in the end, it was all worth it because even after high school, I played my first tournament with the, the Goonies actually. And based on what I was taught in my years of volleyball, especially from Pac-Man, we ended up winning the a men's tournament. At 18 years old, I first this tournament starting as an outside after playing the last two or three years of the right side. Kind of just using the knowledge I got from Kelly and all the coaches he brought along kind of helped shape me into the player I became. So I guess the dedication and the coaching and the effort that Pac-Man's club puts in, like, for example... My 14, 15 year year, we had two coaches, right? three big phenomenal coaches taught me a lot. Whereas I went to Pac-Man, we had two courts, one head coach, which was Kelly, and at least four or five assistants every practice. So, I mean, the way he molds his practice, like each um, assistant is looking at a different technical skill. So you may go through a drill and one coach tells you, hey, you know, your footwork, you can focus on this. And you focus on that, you're doing a great job. And then maybe another coach would tell you, hey, you know, um, on your platform, just hold a little longer. It's like the constant coaching from everybody. And another thing he instilled with us was the aspect of player coach. He really likes when coaches, sorry, when players also help their teammates. So he really encourages while you're in a drill waiting in line, Rather than talking and distracting yourself, look at the person ahead of you. You know, See what you can help them with or see what they're doing differently than you that's making them better. Or what are you doing differently than them that you can help them with? So constant, like the whole environment is just a learning environment to help push each other up. And that was one experience that I, I cherished. And I was like, you know what, this is what I need to do to get better. So I'm going to do what it takes. And one thing that makes your journey pretty unique is you you didn't play post-secondary. So when you were kind of climbing the ranks there and teammates are going on to play college or university, and it seemed like you put in a lot of hours, like you said, playing tournaments with the Goonies or, or even going to like drop-in and stuff like that. Was post-secondary ever a goal of yours or you just wanted to play volleyball as much as you could? Because as far as guys coming from like drop-in, you're, you're definitely top tier, right? And definitely worked yourself into a great player. So tell me about that journey where you didn't get swayed or, or want to go to a school just for volleyball. Like if the program didn't match or if it didn't match your goals, like you were just weren't going to go to, to, I don't know, be an OCAA player and drop out after the first semester. Cause you didn't like it. Like what went into your path that you didn't feel the pressure that you had to go to school to then be a professional volleyball player? I know myself with my dedication. And like when I, when I put my, my mind to something, like I, I'm super determined. Like for example, with Pac-Man, the commute was second to the fact of all the training I was going to get. So one thing I didn't want to do is go into a program, do my four or five years, and come out with nothing. Because 
I have a lot of friends, unfortunately. I mean, kudos to them. They did what they had to do. They did like four or five year program and the job they're working in now has nothing to do with the program they did. So they kind of have a degree they're not using. So I didn't want to jump into something that I didn't see myself doing long term. So I kind of waited things out, see where I want to go and ended up training, doing my own thing. But that was mostly it. Like I didn't know exactly what program I wanted to do at the time. So I kind of took time to myself, worked, coached, and trained pretty much. Nice, nice. And you mentioned the Goonies. Let's get into there. Let's drop some names. Let's talk about that because, again, anybody who got to see you guys play live, it's not a traditional volleyball. You guys are chirping your <laughs> opponents. You're chirping each other. The celebrations are heavy. I got the the pleasure to go to Iceland, and we got to play in like a semi-pro event there. And just, just being around you guys there's never a low energy moment right like there's always something yeah. going on whether it's a it's a crazy high from a celebration or like full-on conflict because two guys are going after each other right so how did that group come together and and how is that like unique bond come together because like i said there there's no low point in energy whether it's good or bad with those guys actually imagine every player who was cut from every team joining forces that's a more exaggerated explanation um, I was 18 at the time, Pedra and Maddie McGurr, who kind of teamed up to start everything, um, they went to Seneca, and a lot of people never asked them to play. It was, I was like, hey, you know, can I play with you guys? Like, yeah, you know, I'm from the roster, let you know. And then tournament day comes, their roster's full, nobody wants to play with them. I ended up playing beach against Pedra and Maddie, and they're like, hey, one play a men's tournament, like you got good ball control and you got a, some athleticism. I was like, sure, I'm down. And from there, kind of introduced me to Will, Jordan Darlington. Our middle was Ishmael from Seneca. And how we came together was simply because, oh, how could I forget? Golden Hands, Jarrell Miller, the highest flying center I've ever played with. <laughs> We pretty much came together because a lot of people that we wanted to play with at the time never said yes to us. It was always a, yeah, I'll get back to you, or um, never, or just no invite at all. And then we kind of joined forces on the fact that, I mean, a lot of people played with their college university friends, or their university friends. I mean, a lot of people looked down on college ball, and there was me never had any experience i was 18 years old and then the rest of the guys just played college for seneca so not a lot of them got any respect and then i will never forget our first ovl tournament because we lost uh, or we split pool play game we ended up playing the rough riders in the semis and i grew up watching the rough riders they would come to Excalibur at York. Pac-Man would um, help run the tournament. So grew up watching them. I remember Kelly telling oh, me. Oh, that's hey, right. Yeah. It's a lot of pro guys, you know. I like 17 years old, watching these guys play. I was like, holy, these guys are crazy. One year later, I'm on the court and they're crossing the net. I was like, oh, my goodness. But we'll never back down. I was like, listen, we didn't drive all the way out to Kingston to come to lose. And I remember we went... To get a, we had to fill our water bottles. It was Jarrell, Jordan, and I. I think maybe Ish. 
and the referees walk by with a, I think a case of beer or something. And as they walk by, before the semis even starts, walking right by us, they go, ah, maybe we'll save these for after we win the finals. And we looked at each other and we're like, no, 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 this is game time. It was the most aggressive volleyball we've ever played. I mean, guys hitting high balls over triple blocks. I remember at one point, Peja helped, he blocked every front row player by himself. <laughs> um, <laughs> they went for a, a 51 in the middle. He helped out, got the block. Then they ran a, well, they went for a high ball. <laughs> he closed the triple block, hit off of him, they pop it back up. And then I think they made a good set one-on-one, -on -one, and then he just completely roofed the guy to end the point. Or like, uh, so I guess we're playing with one front row player today, and it was a crazy experience. Um, we came together. We we demanded the best from each other. Like we all came together knowing what we could do, and we all never got the chance to show what we could do because none of the players wanted to play with us. So that's what we held each other to. It was a matter of now is our chance to show who we are and who we could have been had some of these guys picked us up on their team. Let's let's show it. And that was the mentality I always kept. Just every opportunity, every point is a chance to be better. And the one thing that we have for each other is respect. So I remember 18 years old looking up to Pedja and Maddie, and Pedja looks me dead in the face right before our serve and goes, Hey, you're not passing well, you're passing your trash, I need you to be better. It's like all right. <laughs> and that was it. I mean, the other players, some people may take it to heart, but to me, it was like, you know what? If I don't do this, we could lose. So it was that, that respect and chip on the shoulder we all had that kind of made us the team we became, where <laughs> a lot of teams didn't like us. We scored points, and we let everybody in the gym, <laughs> in the village, in the city know we just scored a point. We made a block, everybody has to know. And we all gave each other credit. One thing I was always taught, especially in 14 you, before you think you're center, when you score, I always think you're passer. So there's times where I score where I'm like, hey, Maddie, great pass. And I told Jarrell, I was like, man, great set. And a lot of people sometimes have that selfish mentality of, I made the point, I this, I that. But there's two contacts before you, before you can score. and. We all valued each other, and we still do. I mean, like a big family off the court. Uh, we had barbecues at Will's house sometimes, go to Pedja's cottage. So we pretty much became a big family after the fact that we were a bunch of misfits who came together and just clicked and were winning tournaments. And is that when it clicked for you that you could play at the next level? Because you mentioned playing against the Ruffies at like an OVL or walking into some of those one volleyball tournaments, like playing against the Western guys who had like Sander Ratzip and Eric Simon or looking at other teams that had like Dan Deering and all these guys. Like those were some pretty stacked tournaments that it almost felt like yeah. if you weren't playing pro, you were playing in those tournaments. So is that when it clicked for you? Because as a guy who didn't play post-secondary, was that the confirmation you needed that you were like at the next level of our sport? I think... The biggest wake-up call for me 
was first year one league against Madawaska Mad Men, which was second game of the season. We're in Kerr Hall, this little gym. Keep in mind, the week before, I was playing outside. I wouldn't even call it a performance. It was just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it was bad. Aaron kind of, you know, said to be at safe. It's like, you know, it was your first game, you know. I mean, you didn't play well, but, you know, just get the nerves out and whatnot. And I went home, I was like, why are you nervous? You've been playing this sport for so long. Why are you nervous? It's just, when I like to tell my, my kids that I coached, it's just practice with a whistle. If you're training hard enough in practice, if you're putting in the time and effort, games are just practice with a whistle and a scoreboard. And sad to say, uh, Rusty, um, he hurt his back the week before our second game. And I get to practice, and Aaron goes, hey, we need you to bang on the right. And I was like, well, I mean, I've been doing this for the past four years. Let's do it. Against Madman. And it was a crazy game. We went to five. It was a gritty, chirpy battle. And I remember Andre Brown and Uchenna were going at it the whole game. Talking, talking, talking. And I remember Eric Madsen came to the net and started chirping um, Uchenna while he's cleaning the floor. And I was like, hey, relax, not that serious. Or something along those lines. And then he goes, <laughs> I love him to death. At the time, he goes, um, what are you talking for? You're not even doing anything. And I was like, oh, really? Perfect. And I remember the next three or four points I had back to back to back. <laughs> and at that point, seeing all the guys that I saw like Excalibur days and just watching university highlights from McMaster's, so playing against like Joey Manta at the time is that um Western, uh, Matt Poulin, Andre Brown, back in grade 10 when I watched Tumber play, Ray Zito, a lot of those guys, Oleg, Steve Hunt, Taylor Hunt, playing against all those guys and kind of holding my own. I mean, after the finals, I finished second in blocking and fourth in scoring. And playing in those games and having that experience, I was like, these are guys I looked up to for so long. I mean, they've had more training. A couple of them had like pro seasons under the belt. And I was like, I'm still holding my own. So I was like, you know what? Like, I need to put more time and effort and take this more serious and make it happen. So I guess at that point, after my second game, I was like, listen, you step up, there could be a future for you. And I took it and I ran with it. Now, we've covered this a couple times on the show, and, and super best friend of the show, Ben Saxon, I thought gave us some good answers where he doesn't tend to get distracted by chirping or get caught up in it because he likes to tell himself that if he's getting chirped, it's because he's more skilled than the other guy and they're just trying to distract him or get him off the game because they, they can't win straight up. Where 
you, you've told some good stories already where you guys engage in the chirping and it doesn't change your performance. So for me, a guy who's coached college a bunch of years, I've seen guys fold themselves up because they'll chirp and say something through the net and then they're almost afraid that they can't make a mistake or get blocked because they'll be on the receiving end and they can't hold up what they're talking, right? You guys will, will talk, but then not score every point, but still be in the battle. So how do you find the comfort? Because I think a lot of lesser players will chirp when they're up, but when things are tight or they're down, they're very quiet. Where uh, I don't think you can tell the score if you're watching the Goonies or watching you play. So where did that attitude come from where you're going to say something, and whether you hit the ball out of bounds or get blocked, you're still going to come right back at them? Mentality I always, always, always carry. When you play a sport like basketball, you know, you're down by two, you hit the three-pointer. You win the game, you're the big hero. You could have been down by 40 points the whole game. In volleyball, every point matters. If you lose two points, you're going to have to win two rallies to get those back. So the mentality I always carry is every point is 0-0. Zero, zero. Every point is your chance to score. And one thing Kelly said, that I carried with me that I also kind of brought to the Goonies is good teams score in bunches and limit their runs. So if we scored like three points in a row, that team scored, our only focus after that was signing out. It wasn't how do we lose the last point, what could we have done? It was signing out. Because now it's 3-1. If we side out, it's 4-1, and then we keep pushing. They score another point, we side out right back. And that was one thing we always had, like, have that sense of urgency to side out on your very first chance to because especially on a spin server or a team that has a, a strong server you also want to move them off the line as fast as possible so with everybody having the same mentality of hey set out this ball right now it doesn't even give the other team a chance to chirp when every time you finish a run you're scoring right back or they're talking trash to you. Everyone gets more dialed in. All of a sudden, we're scoring four, five, six points in a row. So the one thing that kept us all headed is you can never go back. I mean, no referee's going to say, you know what, I'm sorry. You shanked that ball. Let's just have a redo in the, in the, the mindset <laughs> of participation, giving everyone a chance. It's never going to happen. So everyone on the court knows what went wrong. I mean, if it keeps happening, obviously make it verbal. But... The mentality you always have is the next point, every point is a chance to score, to shine, to be better. So we always approach things the same way. And as for talking, it's funny because this was a team where I was on where everybody on the roster, nobody was afraid to have something said to them because we all came from a place where things were said and we couldn't do anything. Or things were said and, you know, kind of made you feel small. Everybody came out with that chip on their shoulder where, I mean, from the beginning, nobody wanted to really call us out to play. So it's like somebody tells you, hey, you're trash, you can't pass. It's like, oh, really? All right. And then from there, it's like the second they shank, it's just more talking. The second they get roofed, more talking. It's like, wait, if I'm bad and we're up by seven points and the game's not even done yet, what does that make you? <laughs> it was kind of like letting our game speak for itself, but also letting the other team know, hey, remember what you said? Yeah, it, it's you're not showing it. 
So we all had that chip on our shoulder and just kept grinding and pushing. Now, with you being a big part of the One Volleyball League, like you said, kind of getting a chance to play on Aaron Nussbaum's team and proving that you earned that spot in some of those tough games, and then with the Goonies going to Iceland and playing against some other pro guys, is that what created this opportunity for FTC that you had either game tape or some people kind of high up in the volleyball community who could vouch for you? Or how did you get that spot with the national team? Because FTC mostly identifies through U sports and the CCAA, right? So for you coming from from a good league, one volleyball is a good league, but I, I don't think that path, you've kind of been the trailblazer of that. I don't think other people did that before you. Honestly, Goonies mentality. Take every opportunity as it comes. A big thank you to Aaron Elsbaum and Brenda Willis, actually. After the finals, she kind of sat me down. She's like, hey, are you working right now? I was like, I mean, I'm doing a job, nothing I want to do long term. She's like, okay, how do you feel about playing pro? I was like, I, I really want to go, but I have no idea how to get to that point. And she's like, okay, perfect. Do you know Michael Amoroso? I was like, yeah, of course. And she's like, okay, I'm going to give you his contact information, and I'm going to let him know that you have um, interest in going pro. And I think you guys should be connected. She's so like, on a technical side, there's stuff you can work on, but athletically, like you're you're there. You just need some coaching, and you'll be right where you need to be. I was like, perfect. That same night, I get a message from Amoroso. He asked me my plans and whatnot, and I told him. He's like, okay, this is me going from just losing a five-set match to Unity Volleyball in the one league finals in a couple of days talking Amoroso and then he goes you know what I think a uh, better route for you would be going to FTC and you know developing there under Dan a great coach you know so it's second year I mean he's new to coaching but he really knows his stuff I was like Dan Lewis the libero the national team he's like yeah you know he's the coach of FTC now it's like okay he's like how does that sound I was like yeah sounds good to me like you know I'm ready to put in the work. And I kid you not, right after I said, I'm ready, you've been added to a group chat. It was me, Michael Amoroso, and Dan Lewis. And I was like, hold up. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> slow down. <laughs> so within a couple of days from losing the finals, I'm in a group chat with Dan. And he's like, okay, uh, I don't really know you, so send me some of your credentials, your your height, your weight, blah, blah, and some game tape. And I sent it to him, and not knowing who he was, you know, highly respect him. I get a message. I got the video, but I don't know which player you are. Can you give me a color and a number? I was like, oh, man, I'm in full panic mode. I was like, oh, you know, she gave it to that first. He watched the video, and I get a message. And he's like, you know, your game tape looks pretty good. I'm going to give you Frank Boyer's, Boyer's email, which is the Team Canada manager. And uh, so we can get this application started. And I was like, perfect. I filled out the application. I spent the next two days making a highlight tape of one league stuff I had. And all of my game tape that was in my highlight video that helped me get into FTC was from one league. And I got a message back a day or two days after I sent in my application and he goes congratulations you've been accepted to the full-time training center program you'll be getting an email from frank uh, looking forward to working with you 
and like life just hit so hard like i'm going from 18 year old kid to 21 just got accepted to the full-time training center where a lot of national guys went through different players train i'm gonna go train with dan lewis who was played literally everywhere and yeah he said and in his reply he said um you should thank Brenda Lewis for your her reference. She speaks very highly of you. And I remember messaging Brenda right after, like, <laughs> paragraph, just thanking her. And she pretty much gave me a little push, and she's like, you know, I think this is the opportunity you need. I think there's um, bright things in your future. And actually, backtrack, I remember before Dan messaged me saying I got accepted, Brenda sent me another a message saying, I just got off of the phone with the national team coaches and I I told them lots of stuff about you and your potential. So the part of how I got there was Brenda and the game tape and the opportunity that Aaron and stuff gave me. So, I mean, if you put in the work, the opportunity comes, you take it and go with it. Yeah, before we move on to FDC, can you just tell us what Brenda Willis did well in that league? Because even though it's it's a glorified all-star league let's let's talk about like one volleyball was a show and it was very entertaining and it was it was there to kind of showcase volleyball and it was such a short season that a lot of coaches probably felt they couldn't do much but she seemed like she was dialed in and and she was going to coach the team up and had expectations of doing well right so even though you only got to work with her a short time what stands out uh, from that season with brenda the biggest thing i'll say is structure and She's very stern. When she wants something done a certain way, she's like, hey, you know, this is how I want it done. And I remember, like, saying something to her. I was like, hey, you know, is it okay if I go here? She's like, um, that's not how we're running our system. I was like, oh, okay, message received. <laughs> but the biggest thing I'll say is she knows the game. She knows what she's doing. And... She, everything is very structured and systematic. I remember I was coaching nationals and I got an email saying, hey, you know, why weren't you at practice? I was like, um, I'm all the way in Edmonton coaching my team. She's like, oh, okay. Uh, I thought you would have been here. Sent me an email with the whole breakdown of the system we were running, the block defense we were running, the offense we were running. And I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Everything was super structured, and I never played full secondary, so for me, that was all like a big wake-up call, and I was like, uh, I don't understand this, but you know, it's okay, we'll get there, because at the time, I really didn't understand, like, the number systems, like, 33s and all that stuff, and she was speaking to post-secondary and pro volleyball players, and then there was me, like, yeah, so I pretty much... <laughs> spent a whole night on YouTube just learning the, I guess, number system for running certain routes and stuff. And from there, it was just all easy. I mean, she had a game plan. She scouted, watched every team at least two or three times. And by practice, our first practice, she was telling us what we needed to do for the next team, what to expect, 
all that stuff. So we never went into a game unprepared. That's the biggest thing I'll say. Every game we went into, we knew who the key players were. We knew the players we needed to control in order to have an advantage in the game. And she really, from a personal perspective, she taught me a lot in terms of the technical side. Because for me, I relied on athleticism and the technical stuff I knew from backland. But when it came to the things you need to get to that next level, she taught me a lot of those nuances that kind of separate you or help you celebrate at the end of a point rather than, oh man, you know, I wish I could have or I, I didn't. So she, she helped me with those technical things. Nice. I imagine that structure paid off when you got to FTC because when I was in Gatineau hanging out with Lionel and some other people learning some stats stuff, you and I were going to meet up and you, you sent me the schedule and that thing was jam-packed with two days and lifts and you had a nutrition seminar. Like it was, it was hard just to find time when we were both off. So what were your first impressions of working with yeah. Coach Dan Lewis and, and like the professional behavior that they really dial in at uh, FTC or excuse me, I keep calling it FTC. I think it's REP now. It's NEP. NEP, excuse me. So, yeah, how how did you find going from the level you were playing at, but then walking in and having everything, like, planned to the minute, it felt like? I mean, the biggest thing was, this is real life. <laughs> we walked in, we got our jerseys, we got our shoes, we got our bags, we got our socks, we got our ankle braces. And I was like, oh, we're, this is serious. And Dan's first words were, hello, everybody. This is... Uh, professional environment so you will act as such and I was like oh he means business and I remember my first day at FTC it was <laughs> I remember Maddie McGurr telling me he's like no matter how much you train or think you're ready FTC is going to push you and show you how out of shape you are <laughs> I remember our first practice, everybody was just burnt out. <laughs> and Dan's practice, Dan's message before our first practice was, hey guys, um, happy Thanksgiving. Hope you guys are ready for tomorrow. So that you guys get some rest because you're in for a real surprise or something along those lines. And I remember looking at uh, Jerome Cross and Matt Bowers and we're like, oh my goodness, this isn't good. <laughs> and he wasn't joking. He pretty much, and it's crazy going from all these years of volleyball back to realizing we need more volleyball. He broke down everything, like passing right down to head positioning. You know, if your head's in this position, you have more range to do this. Or volleying, you know, certain footwork and technical things, and then attacking and blocking, and then picking up cues during the game. Like, everything from when we stepped in was crazy. And one thing I'll say about Dan, Dan is like a, he's like a little Einstein of technical volleyball. I remember him teaching us how to hit high balls, and he's like, a lot of you are taught, you know, one meter off the net, one meter inside. He's like, yeah, um, that's not going to work at the next level. And I kind of had to scratch my head. I was like, well, I've been doing this for the past six years, so I don't know what you're going to teach me now. And it's crazy that, you know, he wanted us to put the ball on the net and had all these fun drills that helped us. It's kind of like the um, Karate Kid experience, you know, doing all this wax on, wax off, and eventually he gets to fighting, 
a lot of the stuff he was training was actually helping him become better. And a lot of these games Dan played with us were actually things that made us better in our overall game. Like I remember we are playing various games, you know, mishandled first contact. Guys are chasing the ball down. I remember Dre specifically at Laval. He's in position one and around serve receive. Mishandled first contact. He sprints past the person in five, puts the ball perfectly on the net, and then someone just flushes it straight down. And just some of the games we played with Dan kind of fine-tunes your game and pretty much overall makes you a better player physically, mentally, and emotionally. Because one thing about Dan that I've never had before, if somebody's not playing to their potential, Dan will never, ever get mad at them. Dan gets mad at our, the team for not holding that player to a higher standard. And just having that atmosphere of everybody constantly pushing each other, there was no time, there was no exception for you to bring 80% to a practice or your second best. I was like, every time you come in the gym, you're expected to bring your best. And if you don't, Dan or your teammates are going to drag it out of you. So I guess that was the biggest wake-up call for me. The schedule was overwhelming. Three lifts a day. Uh, five practice. No, five. Uh, nine practices a week. Um, in the beginning, it was ten. And then we reduced it as the season went on. Dan is one of the smartest coaches I've ever worked with. He really knows his stuff. And he knows how to get his point across. <laughs> Sometimes it's aggressive, sometimes it's very calm, but he's he's a good coach and he knows his stuff. Yeah, as, like you mentioned, is everything gamified with Dan or was there chances to rep it out? Like, how did you find your own learning? Like, it, it's funny to hear you talk about, like, out-of-system hitting because I, I found, like, watching you from the sideline, that was one of the skills I thought you were just wicked at. Probably one of the best players I've ever seen live about hitting just terrible sets, but getting a good cut on the ball and working around triple blocks and things like that. So how did you find your own learning and kind of engaging with Dan's style and not only Dan, but the players around you, right? Because everyone there is a lead and has these huge goals, right? So um, how did you find just kind of the, the pace of everything and kind of going to the next level with the way Dan had everything set up? The biggest thing I'd say is learning to stay in your own headspace, but not get too caught up in at the same time. Um, there's a lot of information being thrown at you and the faster you can develop and understand it is the more you'll progress. So understanding what's right, what's wrong, what consistency looks like versus, you know, that magical pass that somehow went to two and a half. Like he, he taught us the skills that will help you pass a 120 kilometer spin serve and also the 20k spin serve because some people have different footworks different this different that and they pretty much broke it down and helped us understand what we need to do in order to also have good proper contact proper structure another thing is when it came to the technical side we always separated receivers and then everyone else did their separate trading so it's usually receivers on court first and then everyone else lifts and in that, we're doing a lot of reception, a lot of defense stuff out of five and six, different covering drills. So 
one thing he taught us is never waste a rep. So even when you're on the side, same thing, similar to Kelly, look at what someone else is doing. And if he's calling out a player, you should be listening twice as hard because if he has to stop for you, one, that's not good. And two, you're missing your opportunity to learn something also. So when it comes to reps, there's lots of time to put in the work. It's just a matter of you giving your 100%. Some days in the morning, after our warm-up, straight float serves, float serves, float serves, and ball gun, ball gun, ball gun, to the point where from the time the ball touches your platform, you can kind of get a sense of where it's going to land. So just the environment he creates and the opportunities you get, there's a lot of time for you to develop as a player and as a person because of the experiences you get from FTC and stuff. And how did you find the culture there, like when uh, an established national team player would be around? Because I think when you and I met up, you mentioned Riley Barnes chose to rehab there before he went to his pro deal because he was having trouble uh, with his ankle, I believe. So what was what was his presence like in the training environment when you get to see somebody who's uh, playing at a, a super high pro level league, uh, but also like a starter on the national team? It's kind of like your <laughs> superstar walks in moment. Um, at the time, it's kind of like everybody's chasing that pro contract, chasing that national roster spot. And then someone kind of walks in who's already there and stuff. And, you know, you tend to listen to what they have to say and whatnot. Like, and the thing is, one thing I respected about Riley was he showed no shame. I remember we were doing some other system attacking from two and four. And... He was getting frustrated at the sets. He was like, hey, like, can you guys put it on the net? Like, just <laughs> not what you can do with this. Or even dance after practice so you can tell us, like, hey, you know, you have these eight-step approaches to hit a high ball, and you're asking for someone to put it on the net. You're never going to get there. So um, having those players in there and working alongside with us kind of helps you mentally see where you need to get to and what you need to be doing. Because, I mean, I remember the first week, maybe two weeks, Riley was maybe 100% on high balls. <laughs> All the shots he used just kept scoring. I was like, okay, this is fun. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, it kind of makes you chase that next level. Because, as I said, the one thing he did, he didn't come saying, oh, you know, let me play down to the level. Every chance he got the ball to score, he scored. Or he did what he could. And it's kind of like that's the level he's at, which makes him successful. That's the level you need to get to or pass that. So it's good, and it, it helps you gear up and kind of focus and say, hey, you know, I want to get there. And the biggest thing it helps you do is gauge yourself. It helps you understand where you're at and where you need to get to. And having him there, um, a couple other players came in. Uh, JVD came in one practice. And just being able to work with some players kind of fires you up and gets you going to do stuff. And, all right. and how did you feel when uh, national team tryouts came together? So you're a guy who put in your time and you were there all year. Did you felt that 
that helps you prepare for the tryout because the systems and all the stuff you guys had covered or is it is it a whole new game when you got all these university players and pro players back in the gym at the same time all fighting for these limited spots tryouts for me were <laughs> it was a fun time i mean it was nervous but it was fun um dan actually ran the tryout so a lot of the concepts she taught us at um, the full-time training center was a unique experience because he was an assistant under Antigua and assistant under Hogue. So what he did for us in my year of FTC or NEP, he blended the two systems together. So some of the stuff that he took away from Antigua, he taught us. And some of the stuff he took away from Hogue, he taught us and pretty much blended those two together, which became the system that we used. And the national team actually uses. So funny enough, a lot of the drills and the stuff that he was teaching or explaining was stuff that I had been doing for the past like eight, nine months at FTC. So pretty much it was just straight perform, perform, perform. And the biggest difference was, you know, Going from seeing the same players all day, every day for seven, eight months to those different players who bring different characteristics, different attitude, different ball control, different athleticism to the court. And you have to be the best version of yourself. And that's one thing I focused on. Like Dan always prided me on my character and the type of person I was on the court. And he's like, that's the, that's the Joey we need. If you can bring that player, you're going to put yourself in a good position. So I just try to be myself, you know, lead, bring energy, do what I could, and put me in a great spot, and I made the team. Now, for me and the listeners, when you say blending Glenn's system and Antigua's system together, what does that mean to you? Like, what made Stefan Antigua's system so special, and what's Glenn doing right now that's so special? And then kind of compliment how Dan found the common theme and was able to kind of do his own thing with all his learning going on as well. Um, from the way Dan explained it, um, Antigua brought over a little bit more of the European-style game with the pushes and the power tips and the, the wiping off the block and stuff. Whereas Hogue had a system of, um, for example, before I got to FTC, you know, if the middle goes up and swings, then our middle is blocking. I get to FTC and it's like, well, if they run a 51 or a back quick, a 61, then you as left side, you have to help out. But also, your main priority is always your player. So if you can help out and still be on time to your player, then you start helping more, helping more. Or if the ball is set to the 31 or shoot, then the opposite has to help out, or else they're just going to get killed in that gap. And understanding how playing to the gaps work, and in Hulk system, it was, um, for example, Dan taught us, a lot of players can't hit your line. So the sharpest, the hardest line they'll go is maybe a meter off the line. And what that means is, as an outside, I don't have to chase too aggressive to the line if they can't truly hit pure line, which also means my defenders in one and five don't necessarily have to be so worried about chasing to the line. 
So what we did was a lot of forcing players to hit pure line. And for some players, they have to hit off-speed shots. Some players hit out of bounds. The ones who could hit pure line, it was like, hey, good job. I mean, this is the shot we're giving you. If you're going to take it, take it. And then stuff like with Antigua, you know, the whole, rather than just standing stationary and reacting, you kind of want to be shift your body weight a little bit towards your player. So if I'm in four, I'd shift my weight a little bit to the left. That way, the second the ball is released to position two, I can get outside and I'm never late on my opposite attacking. But also, at the same time, when you're shifting to the left, your left leg is loaded to push back inside and help out with the, the 51 or the pipe. So that was the Antigua system and stuff with the pushes. And then Hogue's system of understanding gaps. If you, the middle and outside are helping out, the middle barrel is between those two, which means the ball should be funneled in his direction and vice versa on the other side of one. And he did a great job of blending them two together and teaching us like different ways of scoring different situations. If the ball was off the net, when we threw it on the net, there was a high percentage, <laughs> there was a high chance we were scoring. In system, um, Dan taught us that a lot of international volleyball is played. If the ball is inside three meters, that's an in-system pass. So we actually started off FTC training with what you call an exclamative pass, which is somewhere just inside three meters, two and a half, three meters. And after our first game, we were, we had a higher percentage side out in exclamative rather than plus, double plus, or perfect pass. And that just goes to show like how Dan goes about things. And a lot of the stuff he taught us, for example, how to pressure hitters, um, if you can run a fastball and hit line, that forces your blocker to have to get all the way out and close. And by that blocker being worried about that, it opens up the gaps now for pipes and for middles. And the way he broke down everything between the two systems kind of helps you really see the game differently. And I guess the easiest thing to explain was he combined a European style or different style of Antigua to the more systematic breakdown of folk and put it together. It gives you like a, <laughs> a Team Canada hybrid system. And is there anything that stands out to you when you look back about all this learning that was going on and all the different coaches you're exposed to that just blew your mind? Like, remember when we had Dre Foreman on the show, he talked about how he was told to basically go stand beside the six-back player and they were going to cover this certain zone and the middle, Danny Demininko, was going to cover the cutty, basically. Like, it was just this weird system where this guy's going to light up the seam, so we're going to actually give him the seam and put two defenders there, and we're going to get a ton of digs off him. Was there anything that that's, like, to me, that's super obvious, but something you wouldn't do at club ball? You're like, why would we put two players beside each other in the same area when hopefully one can dig it, right? So was there anything that was, like, complex at first but made total sense and kind of blew your mind with being exposed to all these great volleyball minds? There's a whole bunch. But the biggest thing... I'll say is defense in six. I was used to, you know, the ball goes to position four, you take a step to the left, you stay outside the blocker. Then I got to Dan's coaching, and if you play six and Dan is your coach, 
you better have 99 focus and 99 endurance. If it's a perfect pass or there's a chance you can run pipe, there's no, uh, okay, I'll go and I'll call it. Nope. You have to go every time. And then when you go, you got to cover short side. So you and the libero interchange. So if I run my pipe route and the set doesn't come to me, it goes to four or two, I got to go short side and cover four or two. If there's a recycle, I got to play it up. Still be an option coming back around for the pipe. And then let's say we score. They have a miscontrolled ball. It goes to the high ball situation. Now I go from three and a half to three meters all the way back to nine meters, reading the angles and the chase downs and where I need to go. And the biggest thing was understanding and reading the game differently, like how I adjusted from my initial position at five and a half meters and then sometimes having to be at three meters and then sometimes having to be at nine meters. And then there's other times where I'm even playing position five because Dre makes a dig and we, the way we crossed over, I end up in position five, we stay there. And six, six, playing in position six became a completely different game. And I remember Dan, Dan is very technical, especially I think the one thing he loves is when the other team's opposite cannot hit mine. Because there was times where we pushed all the blockers over. Like, I was fronting the center, helping out with the middle. And then Dre, at one point, I remember it was in a, a highlight video I showed my, my coach in Germany. Dre, I kid you not, was standing at like five and a half, six meters in position six as a libero, digging an opposite, hitting back row. And we had a perfect dig, like just inside, <laughs> three meters. And it was all from a dance side. It's like, hey, this opposite is super internal, likes to come across his body. So, you know, leave the line. And Dre literally left the line <laughs> and he was in position six and made a perfect dig. And Sometimes those things blow your mind. Like if you don't have the technical skills to hit a wide range of angles, it makes life easier for the opponent, and it really showed. And <laughs> it's crazy because when Dan like maps things out, and it all plays out in a game, the game becomes so slow. Like a number playing against uh, Quebec, and he was saying. The center, whenever he's moving forward, he likes to play back. Whenever he's um, falling backwards, he likes to play forward. So there was times where he's running forwards, maybe at like position three and a half, just past the middle. And he's jumping forwards and reaches the middle. You can even see in that game tape, the middle just starts releasing to position two. And then we both get a nice double block on the opposite. And just, I don't know if Dan played a lot of pattern games when he was younger, but when it comes to him finding patterns with certain players and stuff, it's it's crazy. I remember um, another player we watched in Quebec also. Oh, actually, Laval. One of their outsides. Dan, <laughs> in the game plan, after showing us game tape, 
he maybe got six sets in a four set match. And at one point in um, our breakdown, he goes, if I see any of you releasing to position four when he was front row, we're going to have a long talk after the game. <laughs> <laughs> and it was crazy because he actually barely got set when we played. It was great. Like Dan just picks up on a lot of things. And when you actually see it play out, it's, kind of mind-blowing sometimes awesome so when you're going along on this journey and then you get the chance to represent canada and you go to an international competition what do you remember from being with the b squad like i'm looking at the roster and there was a ton of young guns like you and dre and an app who's still at trinity setting and then you got some vets like jeremy davies and danny demianenko like how was the the vibe and actually uh, casey shouten was on that team so you got guys who have played at the highest level and then you got guys who are still young guns coming up in the system how did that team come together, and what was it like representing Canada for the first time? Honestly, it was a beautiful experience. Flashback, my last year coaching uh, my 17-year-old boys, I found out the B team was there playing in Mexico in Edmonton. And I played with Brandon Coppercourse in the back, man. And as I'm signing in my team, Nationals first day, BK walks out and I was like, oh, what's up? It's like, yeah, I just played our match, whatever. And seeing players you played with or players you played against kind of get to that level, I was kind of like, you know, why not me? And flash forward, made the team. Um, it's a whole different experience, you know. At first it was, you know, make the team, represent country. And then you get to the team and being on the B team, a lot, if not all of the guys are pushing to get to that A spot. So it goes from like FTC where everyone's pushing, you know, to get better to everybody's pushing to crack that roster. So everybody is trying to push harder, be the best they can be. And it was a whole different environment, especially Danny being a great leader. Danny is an absolute workhorse in the gym, animal on the court, animal, just a fiery player. Um, just seeing the type of leadership and stuff that everyone brings i mean casey was my roommate and casey shared like a lot of information with me like he even traveled with the eighteen when he was a little bit younger um and even having him as a roommate kind of shed light on a lot of things and just seeing his lifestyle a lot of the stuff he does stuff he doesn't do i remember moving into our apartments right after trials were done and you get a coupon from the the landlords to get a medium pizza and a two-liter drink. And I remember we got the pizza, whatever. Took out the two-liter. I was like, what do you want? I was like, um, I took out the Coke. He's like, Coke, really? That's so much sugar. And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> this guy is serious. <laughs> like, uh, I know it does. That's why I want it, man. Like, give me the Coke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just seeing different... Things like some people say, like, you know, physically they'll go crazy in the gym or they'll go crazy on the court. Being having Casey's roommate, everything down to how he eats, he's always reading books, um, looking up different nutritional facts and vitamins, all that stuff. Just seeing the extra effort people put in to get to that next level kind of 
puts a little fire in your step and just makes you want to push harder. And when did the Pro Talk start? Was that something that Amoroso was still helping you out with, even though you were in Gatineau? Was that something Coach Lewis was doing? Or was it confirmation that if you're going to represent Canada, that you're good enough to play overseas and that's what kind of got you hooked up with your club? Or how was that journey for you? Um, initially, it was Dan, around Christmas time, made a group chat with all the guys who wanted to play pro. And... We made a group chat and pretty much got us in contact with an agent. And after talking, you know, weighing out different pros and cons, ended up signing with an agent. And he brought some offers along. And from there, some teams were on the fence about certain things. And then it took like two months before things got finalized. The original opposite they wanted got injured, so they're waiting to sign him first before they finalize things with me. So they end up signing the opposite, and then I get a message from my agent right before we're about to play our first game in Mexico, right before I'm about to play my first international tournament. He's like, hey, congrats, you know, the team sent the offer, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, this is crazy. And I'm showing. Um, assistant coach uh, Ryan at the time was like, hey, I got my offer, I'm about to sign. And it all like unfolded. Like my about to be my first international game, you know, getting ready, suited up, have my jersey in my bag. I have my contract sitting in front of me. And a part of it was some of the recommendations and making the team also helped out. But I was also just he liked the potential he saw, and he said there's room to grow and stuff, and ended up signing with that team. Had a great year with them, and it was a great time in Germany. Yeah, how did you find Germany? I think that's an awesome country to visit, and hearing Canadian volleyball players pretty lax with the foreigner rule. So were you the only Canadian on your team? Was there a lot of English speakers? Like, how did you find not only, like, the level, but also the stuff off the court, just getting along with teammates and being able to kind of walk around your city and do everything you need to do? Um, the level was actually great. There's a lot of pro, or sorry, international players in Germany. Like, Berlin is filled with them. Friedrichshafen has some. Um, a lot of teams have a whole bunch of national players on them. The city, I mean, the country itself is great. I mean, everybody also talks about the Autobahn. It is a fun time on the Autobahn. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of language, all my teammates spoke English. Uh, the coach, all the staff. Um, from what I understand, my team was telling me, English is actually the official second language in Germany. So all the important places you need to go, like City Hall or the bank or stuff like that, someone on staff or most of the staff has to be able to speak English. So you'll never feel left out in terms of the language barrier. The whole experience was great. Coach spoke English, players spoke English, and we had a Japanese libero who <laughs> spent the whole season brushing up on his English, which he was very good at to start. But it was a lot easier to get around than I thought it would be. Everything was pretty straightforward. A lot of people think you drive on the opposite side. No, you drive on the exact same side like we do here. So everything was the same. However, if you can't drive manual, then I'd suggest you learn before you head to Europe. 
I mean, luckily I could, so I was okay. But almost every vehicle I've been in was standard, including like the team bus we drove. Everything just manual. And how did you find the level of ball? So again, to go through your journey, a guy who came from like playing with the Goonies, playing one volleyball, you get to the National Excellence Program, and then you're playing pro. Did everything kind of come together, or was there still a jump to be made when you're overseas playing pro? The biggest thing I'll say is it's it's different. With international ball, you're kind of practicing hard to gain experience and you know, eventually break the roster to be in that top tier with the players who travel and whatnot. With pro, it's... Again, they're taking you as the player you are because they, they see what they like in the player that you're showing. And that's what they use to mold the team. So every team plays to their strength. The level, I'd say, was I thought it would be higher. But also at the same time, it was, it was pretty good. I mean, the top teams are really strong. And then you got the teams in the middle of the pack who are kind of fighting for the rest of the spots. But even with the top teams, like we we beat a couple of teams. We took a lot of teams to five. We pushed a lot of teams. And the biggest thing I'll say is you can see the seasoned vets when it comes to playing pro. A lot of people know it's hard to score and transition and whatnot. But a lot of the veterans. I remember this one guy named Bogachev that me and my teammate Jogo always spoke about. He salt and pepper hair, looks like an older guy. Steadiest receiver, consistent serve, but the guy just scoring machine. Like if there's ever a player who just makes the best of an ugly situation, it's him. He'll get a set too tight, he'll get a set too far off, and he just finds a way to either recycle the ball or catch your outside hand or something. So you really start to understand the game isn't always physical. Sometimes it's the experience and the mental side that gets you over the edge. So playing in Germany was a great start and great experience. I learned a lot from my league, pushed me to do a lot in that league, and... It really helped. It really helped me understand what I've done up until now and what I need to do. And one thing you and I talked about before the show and before we went on air is just with all the the racism talk and everything going on, one example we thought about in volleyball was, you know, people of color, they don't have ball control. And I'm thinking your style and the way you play, that's actually not true. And you've disproved this with how athletic you are and how you pass the ball. Did you ever hear this growing up or how did you face this head on? Because... uh, I find volleyball is a safe space, but maybe other people have had a different experience, but that's definitely one that I've heard and, and had to kind of disprove and, and using athletes like you or Dre Foreman as an example of guys who can really take after like the first touch. What was it like growing up for you? Was there any kind of limiting talk or kind of pigeonholing you into a certain position based on a stereotype? I mean, a lot of friends and stuff, or even other coaches at times, when I told them I was an outsider, they're like, no, you're not. You're, you're middle or an opposite. I was like, why? You guys don't pass. I was like, oh, really? Okay. Come watch me play then. But a lot of people kind of get the mentality that, oh, because you're this color, you can only play these positions. And I guess that was also part of it. 
kind of trying to disprove people that, hey, you know, it's we can do this too. So it wasn't only a matter of, you know, I had to play opposite or middle because, you know, if we don't have ball control. Yeah, there, there were times where, I mean, I've always played left side and then back might have played opposite. But I remember people kind of inviting me out to play. I told them to play outside, like, oh, never mind, you need it in the middle. And I was like, uh, I don't play that position. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, we jump high. I was like, yeah, there's more to the middle than jumping high. <laughs> I don't think I can help you out there. But, yeah, some people kind of limit you to what you can do based on what they see on the outside. So there have been times where people have. But, yeah, when it comes to being a colored black athlete um yeah there are times where people try to label you but that's where the fun part comes in is i get to write my own story if you tell me i can't pass and I end up <laughs> passing 80 percent 30 something receptions then i mean what can you say to me now so i mean go out there and prove yourself that's the easiest way to show them that they're harmed now, obviously, beach probably helped you getting just more touches and working on the ball control stuff. But do you think playing other sports helped give you that attitude? Like you brought up basketball a few times where there's kind of that head to head attitude. And when we had Josh Binstock on the show, he mentioned like playing hockey kind of gave him that aggression, like me versus you, where maybe somebody who's just played volleyball their whole life, they don't get in those conflict situations where it's not personal. It's just a battle in sport and you're going to take it on head to head. Like, is that what's made you comfortable in those situations? Because it sounds like you have a really good attitude where... You don't get offended. You seem to take everything as a challenge. That's a double-edged sword. Uh, <laughs> it started being the youngest. I have three older brothers. So I remember my brother was a year older than me. I remember winning my uh, first OBA basketball tournament in grade seven. And I came home. I was like, hey, look what I won, you know. And then he comes in, you know. Oh, yeah, I just won my, um, my basketball tournament ranked number one in the, um, the province and i was like oh so it's like sometimes all your achievements seem so small because he's doing it on a, a grand scale like he's invited he's been invited to the national team tryout multiple times and then at the time i was like um i mean my friend invited me to play beach if that counts <laughs> <laughs> so just that constant push to like you know make a name for yourself. Even going into high school, my two older brothers went to my same high school and I went in there as, you know, Justin's older brother or Jermaine's older brother. It's like, you know, I'm tired of being the youngest. Like, you know, it's not something I can change. I can't change the order of how I was born. You know, it's always like, I want to be me. I don't want to be in anyone's shadow. I don't want to hear, oh yeah, you know, he's just like his, I just wanted to be myself. So I kind of decided to write my own story, how I carried myself, how I played, how I trained. And I just want to be different from them and not have to carry the burden of, oh, you're good because of this, you're good because of this. I just want people to see the work I put in and just accept it as, you know, I worked for everything I got. And um, also, in um, basketball, as you mentioned, it's a lot of, there are mental one-on-one battles. I played in leagues where you're going into a game where nobody really knows your team or respects your team, and you got to go out there and grind. I remember I was playing in Mega City a couple of summers ago, which is a very popular high-level basketball league, and 
we went into a game and we were ranked we, oh we were tied for first and we're like guys it's an important game like hey we're two undefeated teams we gotta win this game in order to move on and by halftime I think or just after halftime we were up by 40 points and one thing I got from Phil Pac-Man coach when I was in 50 new he was coaching his team it was 0-0 and the first words out of his mouth was hey guys let's go we're down 10 and I was doing the score and I was like what is he saying <laughs> All of a sudden, three passes come out of nowhere. All of a sudden, the ball hitting the floor faster than you can imagine. And only when they had a 10-point spread was it 0-0. Just to get that sense of urgency out of them. Because they held themselves to a, a level where, you know, they thought that they could beat this team in X amount of point spread. So until they got to that point spread, they considered themselves down. And that was one mentality I carried with me. I remember we were up by 20 points, and a lot of teams like the coast. And in a timeout, I was like, hey, guys, we're down 10. We don't let up. Keep pushing. And it got to the point where we were up 40. <laughs> I mean, we weren't, we weren't down 10. We were up by 40, but we kept going. And we're like, hey, we're here to make a statement. Like, no team respects us. We're the guys from Vaughn. And, you know, we all came together. Most of us played high school with friends together. And we came to make a statement. And another game in that season, um, one of the players we had, probably our best player, he played in the D-League and stuff, Alex Johnson. He had a D-League game, so he couldn't come play. So I ended up playing point guard. And the team we're playing against, I just didn't want to lose. I beat them in a league I played in against them before, and I was like, hey, I'm not here to lose to them with a better team. The guy that was guarding me was actually ranked first in the league, and I I refused to lose. And I just kept grinding, played as hard as I could. I ended the game with 40 points, 13 rebounds, and like eight assists. And after that game, I took over number one ranked spot in the league. It's kind of like having your chip, that chip on your shoulder. Like, even the way he was warming up, you know, he kind of had that swagger to him where he was like, I'm the man. And I was kind of like, hey, you know, I may not have the name that you have, I may not have the experience, but if we're going to battle, let's battle. And we won by, I think, 15, 20 points. And just that sense of urgency, like, it doesn't matter where you came from, what you did, what matters is right now. The clock's running, the rough blew the whistle, it's game time. Show me what you have. And that's the mentality that kind of just grew on me. Always that opportunity to prove yourself, being the youngest or being the smallest. I mean, I grew gradually, even being 6'4", I was the second shortest on the national team. I was the shortest player at my team in Germany after my libero. So... It's just that constant fight of, yes, everyone has limitations, but what are you going to do to make yourself different or stand out?
Yeah, it reminds me of the last dance when Michael Jordan would have those interviews and he'd say, oh, my, my GM thinks this guy is a great defensive player, so I had to show him that he's not. And just finding those ways to get up for like a long season in those games. I'm wondering, yeah. did you ever use that in practice as well? Or is there ever a time where you use it too much? Like, are you always able to switch this on? Or what advice would you give for like a younger athlete who wants to train this where they can, they can get up? Because the OVA season can be pretty long, right? So how are you going to get fired up for that second pool play game in February where it's such a long and drawn out season. I was able to turn it on and off, but the biggest thing you learn at playing pro at international level is being an outside, you're usually focused on stopping an opposite, which is a very, very tough task in itself. A lot of the scoring machines, the big aggressive hawk looking guys who play opposite, it's your job to help slow them down. So I always took it as a, a challenge, especially blocking. You could ask my teammates in Germany. I had <laughs> some of my craziest blocks this season. I one hand roofed <laughs> an opposite on an overpass. A lot of players. My challenge to myself was always be the best you can be. Especially every day waking up knowing I'm the shortest player on the team, there's always something that's going to limit me. But I can jump, I can do what I need to do, but it's a matter of what can I do outside of that that's going to separate me from my opponent to help or to give, help me give my team a bigger edge to win. And one thing we had was a, a crazy libero, Japanese guy, Taichi, he loved digging opposites when they're back row. So I told him, hey, I'm leaving the line for you. If he's on the line, he's all yours. He's like, perfect. And he was, everyone there called me JJ. He's like, hey, JJ, leave the line, leave the line. Left the line, and he was just making the digs left, right, and center. But when I made a good read, I saw the line was there. Just getting that perfect close on a, an opposite, where well, usually big bangers are just completely destroying them. Um... That constant push, knowing that if you're not on your game, you could really destroy your team because if an opposite gets going, then it's over for anybody. I mean, you look at any opposite, besides of Shawan, who else is there? Kurik. If those players get on the run, Wallace, then it's like they're already physical players in themselves. If they get that extra energy, then it's not going to be a fun time. So knowing that come game time, you have to be on your best game to make sure that they're not completely wiping the floor with your team really gets you fired up every day to make sure you're doing your best. Even at the service line, a lot of them have very aggressive bomb serves. If you're not on your best game to help get that server off the line or if you put the ball away, then it kind of frustrates you. So. Finding different ways to challenge yourself always helps you get going in the morning, even during the toughest times. So I mentioned earlier, I think you're one of the best highball hitters I've ever seen, and, and you mentioned that Dan Lewis wanted you to work on that. So what made you naturally good at that? And then what were some things that you kind of tweaked to be at the next level? Like I remember you and I sharing a joke that 
you, you almost compared your high school setter to like a snowstorm where every snowflake was different. Every set was different. And that's what really had you uh, working on your footwork and staying behind the ball. But what were some little things that made you so effective? And then what were some things that uh, coach Lewis gave you that took you to the next level? To set up. Yes. <laughs> um, some of my teammates in high school called their setter a snowflake setter, because as you know, no two snowflakes are alike. <laughs> and a lot of the sets you got, Whereas sets, they didn't look the same. So understanding your approach, how to close your footwork to the ball, how to accelerate, how to delay your approach, it pretty much teaches you how to work your body or manipulate your body in a way that every set becomes perfect. So that's one thing that helped me. But also seeing the block. I remember 14U, our coach came out with a, a shovel. And he's like, I want you guys to hit where the shovel isn't. And the setter would set the ball, and he'd move the shovel, either on the line, cross, or shot cross. And you'd have to see it with peripherals and attack the ball. And then those things help train your eye to the point where uh, I get the Pac-Man, and we're hitting high balls. And one thing that he taught us, that Kelly taught us, was you should always have your setter in front of you or in your front of your field of view so you shouldn't be facing the net and have to be looking over your shoulder for a high ball at the time that's what he taught us so i'd always get back open up wider that way i can close my steps towards the ball and i'd always delay my approach and one thing he always taught us is a lot of people look at warm-ups and they get super excited about the ball bouncing hitting the roof and kelly said this is what you guys need to do to understand real volleyball don't look at how high the ball is bouncing after it hits the floor. Look at the point of contact and where the ball is crossing the tape. Because a lot of players are touching over 11 feet by 18U, or 17U, I should say. Some players are catching the contacting the ball over the top tape and hitting maybe one, two balls worth of height above the top tape. What Coach O said is you can be six seven with a forty inch vertical and by you hitting like that you make yourself like five three with a ten inch vertical because you're bringing the ball down to the height of a blocker who doesn't hell has no business blocking you. So with those things in mind, like that's what I took into every approach, every attack, keeping the ball high. If I bring the ball down I'm making myself small, giving the blockers an advantage to shut me down. And that's what always helped me. So just wherever the ball was, getting my feet to it, keeping it high, using the block, and being the most efficient player I could be. And I guess that's what translated into me now. And then from there, Dan taught us different ways. With the ball tighter on the net, it forces the blockers to be as aggressive with you. If the ball's off the net and you're not as physical of an attacker, most teams at the next level will tell their front row to stay down and then the back row will just dig it and then they're transitional. But by you putting the ball on the net, it forces those blockers to stay on the net, which gives you more options. You can go push into the block, recycle, you can go push off the block out of bounds, which is my favorite. A lot of my <laughs> teammates at FTC will tell you, wiping the ball off the block is something I did all the time. Um, pushing the ball just over the 
the middle into the plot or into the middle of the court or going high line, which is the most efficient shot that teaches us. Because once you go high line off of one of the outside's hands, it's hard for six to get that ball and even harder for the person in one or five to get that ball. So just learning what I was doing that was making me successful versus what I needed to at the next level and just putting that all together and it really helps your overall game. Like even now, especially when a set isn't ideal, but it's tight enough, a lot of blockers will be aggressive and try to go over the net. Because me, compared to regular people, everyone's like, you're tall. I was like, yeah, not for the sport I play. <laughs> <laughs> so me being a short attacker, when the players get a lot like over-aggressive coming across the net, I don't even swing. I just push into the block, out of bounds. I take my point, I celebrate. So um, the things I learned from Dan, the things I learned from Kelly, things I had taught by accident from the center I had, just closing, staying behind the ball, reaching high all the time, using different shots. And what gave me a pretty dynamic range when it came to hitting high balls. So that's the biggest thing. Well, it's good to hear that Kelly and Pac-Man don't preach this hammering balls because I can remember one of the first like famous volleyball videos I've seen online was like 50 big hits by Pac-Man. It was like Dan Deering and Terrell and all these guys just hammering balls in warm-ups. I'm yeah. glad that that's something that's athlete-driven and not program-driven by Kelly and the other coaches. Yeah, something he really took out of us. Um, but a funny story to go along with that. I mean, you told me about my high ball hitting, which I do love doing. My favorite thing was hitting high balls. I remember 17U, we're in Rochester, after constantly nagging Kelly to play left side, I was like, hey, you know, I can pass, you know, give me a chance. I just had a great game, you know. She played the starters and then the bench second in pool play. She had a good second set. And then the next game, Kelly pulls me aside, he's like, hey, Joey, you want to play left side? I was like, yeah, of course. What do you mean? I've been waiting for this for so long. Anyways, game time comes. And it's like the movies, you know, when the, the kid comes off the bench, the 12th person on the roster, and they go in, and everything that can possibly goes wrong, goes wrong. That's what it felt like. You know, all of a sudden, they were serving me, and things were going completely horrible. I was getting blocked by, like... <laughs> four foot setters. I was like, Kate, hey, what's going on? This is not how I play. And then top it all off, right before I get subbed out, almost, it, it had to, it's like a movie. It could have been in Hollywood. I get a high ball from position six. Because the way our system was, we'd set our high balls to four at the time. I get a high ball from position six. And, you know, staying behind the ball, I'll start, you know, doing what I do best, hitting high balls. The ball perfectly lines up with one of those big industrial lights. And I completely lose the ball as it's coming down. And I take a nice, big, aggressive swing only for the ball to land straight in front of me. <laughs> After that, I get subbed up, go to the bench. And I mean, some of my teammates laughed at me. It is a laughable moment, but it was probably the funniest and saddest experience. You know, I had my big shot to play outside. It was going horrible. And then the, the cherry on top, I swung at a ball, missed, you know, didn't even hit my foot or something on the way down, just straight to the floor. <laughs> and I was like, oh, perfect. 
So yeah, um, hey, everything happens for a reason. I mean, I like playing high balls now. High balls are fun. I know not to let the ball hit the floor, especially when it's set for me. So things have changed since then. <laughs> <laughs> well, credit to Coach Kelly for giving you another chance to be an outside because that that's for sure confirmation that you weren't ready at that time and that, that could have sealed it for you, but good for him to keep giving you chances to, to work through it because, like I said, definitely a, a big part of your game is hitting out a system and being a, a skilled outside. So that's funny. We, we can all start somewhere. That's a good story to close this out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right, man. Well, definitely taking into overtime here. Thanks for sharing everything. I definitely learned a lot. I thought I had an idea about your career, but it's good to share all the details you have and, and definitely a unique journey. And hopefully, you know, you can inspire some people with what you've gone through and shown that there there's many paths to the national team. So easy guy to root for. So best of luck with Volleyball Canada and your pro deal once we, once we get over this hump and back to playing sports again. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me.